Today's episode is sponsored by Feather. Feather provides digital marketing tools and strategies for nonprofits of all shapes and sizes, including the Humane Society of North Central Florida. Stick around for the break to hear how Feather powered their $300 digital ad campaign that raised nearly $6,000 in just one day. Hey, I'm John. And I'm Becky. And this is the We Are For Good podcast. Nonprofits are faced with more challenges to accomplish their missions and the growing pressure to do more, raise more, and be more for the causes that improve our world. We're here to learn with you from some of the best in the industry, bringing the most innovative ideas, inspirational stories, all to create an impact uprising. So welcome to the good community. We're nonprofit professionals, philanthropists, world changers, and rabid fans who are striving to bring a little more goodness into the world. So let's get started. Hey, Becky. Hi, John. We're excited today. Excited. Yeah, he's finally here. I know. We have Paul D'Alessandro on today. And I have to just share a little bit about the time that I first met Paul and had one of the most mind blowing 45 minute conversations with someone who is a CFRE fundraiser, has his JD as an attorney, and is also a member of the Supreme Court of the United States. John, did you know people like this existed in our industry? (laughs) And even better. I understood him. And I have to just say that I'm married to an attorney, so I feel like I have a little bit of a license to say this, but I have a hard time understanding attorneys in our sector. They are at such a higher level. They understand legalese. They're the ones that are helping us put together these really complicated giving structures, whether it's with charitable remainder trusts or if we're putting together life insurance policies. But Paul is like the the end-all be-all. He wears all the hats and he was so incredibly progressive and his modernization and his um, forward thinking lens on where nonprofit needs to go and the avenues by which we need to go were so compelling to me. And so I want to give our listeners just a little bit of background on Paul. He's the founder of High Impact Nonprofit Advisors. And I think it's just an incredible organization um, that's doing fundraising and strategic management consulting. And he's got 30 years of experience in the sector. So he's been in the sector as a fundraiser. He's worked um, as an attorney. And I just really value the way that he challenges the sector in a lot of ways. And he is elevating the game. He wrote the most progressive book. I'm holding it up if you're looking at the video right now called The Future of Fundraising that we're going to be talking about today. And I'm just telling you, if you guys fall in love with Paul in in this episode and the way I did in the first 45 minutes, this is going to be a treat for you. So Paul, welcome to the show. We're so delighted you're here. I'm really excited to be here. It's just great being with you guys. It's just fun stuff in this sector. So thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. And I, you have such an interesting personal story, an interesting professional story. And we want to go back to like little Polly growing up, like, let us get to know you. Where did you grow up? How did you fall into this sector? And what led you here today? (laughs) That's a great question. Paul grew up in, uh, born in Brooklyn, but raised in Jersey. So I'm a Jersey boy. My friends back home call me Paulie D. So <laughs> oh, that's I got, awesome. yeah, got Paulie D's corner. Yeah. So that works out well. I wanted to be a fighter pilot and at a party um, when I was like 10 or something, my dad said, what do you want to do that? There's no home life. He said, you, sh- you talk so much. You should be a lawyer. I never thought again that <laughs> there's anything else that I should be. 
So I went to law school and I hated it, actually. Um, a lot of reading, a lot of writing, and um, so and a lot of technical stuff. And it was always about the exceptions. So I, I started, I went into consulting with Deloitte um, after law school. After I worked in a tax court for a year. Oddly enough, I really liked the tax law, but then I did tax consulting with Deloitte. And so I got a letter from Notre Dame said, hey, you know, we've got an off we've got an office opening up in Palm Beach and we think you'd be really great as a fundraiser on a campaign. I didn't know what a fundraiser was. I didn't know what a campaign was, but I knew where Palm Beach was. And so I interviewed. <laughs> sold. <laughs> I sold. I got down there and the theory was there's a lot of money coming into Florida. And uh, what I found is the money comes to Florida and it leaves Florida. I was back in 86. And so I got into fundraising and then I really liked it. I said, I'm going to, Fig, I'm going to meet everybody who's got all this money and then whatever, when I meet somebody who's doing like the really coolest thing and, and is really happy and making a ton of money, I'm going to go do that. But I never met that person. So that was you. Know, you. I'm st- yeah, no, I'm still <laughs> fundraising, but it's been an amazing journey and experience. I've met some incredible people along the way. Well, I love that you can just channel that experience because I think that when Becky was so effusive after she met you, I mean, you have written this really breakthrough book that speaks to this very moment. And I think you've channeled your experience, your life growing up into this very moment to be able to speak to what's happening um, and what's the mindset that's happening today in today's donors. Would you kind of dive into that today and kind of give us, paint the picture for it? Sure. So kind of the the inception of the book happened about four years ago at a conference, and I met some guys at uh, Boodle AI. It was a startup, and they were talking about artificial intelligence and uh, machine learning. And I was like, really fascinated, like that. I'm like, what is what's happening in this sector right now? Because going to a lot of meetings, um, AFP and uh, and other conferences, it, it was kind of the same old, same old. And everybody's looking at past data to talk about what's happening in the future. But really, it's not really a good predictor of what happens in the future. I mean, if you just look at it, you would say, well, we're raising more and more money. Well, that's great, but there's also more and more charities and people have more and more money. So are we really doing great stuff? So, But I I started looking, where's the trends? And the trends were tech, tech, tech. You know, you have engineers in this space. But I also noticed that, you know, because I'm a lawyer, um, and because I'm a fundraiser and I have my own business, there's a lot of different confluences of things that were happening. And those things included donor privacy and the laws that happened in one the recent court the case that went to the Supreme Court. It had to do with blockchain and cryptocurrency and the different avenues of how people are giving. And then, you know, what is the role of a fundraiser and how can artificial intelligence make a difference? So just a quick story. I was at a, another conference and uh, someone from ALS spoke after the bucket list and they said, you know, we teamed up with MasterCard and in one day they looked at all the data from the uh, bucket list challenge, all the names that went in there and they were able to tell us who our best donors were. One day, you know, where, you know, in the past we would spend, you know, hours and hours and days trying to find the best people. So there's a lot that's happening and transitioning right now in the space and donors, that was my last chapter, are driving the change on it because they're so far ahead in nonprofits right now, it's not funny. So that was the inception of the book. And it kind of priced it really low just so people could say to awaken themselves to what's going on in the space and awaken their boards to stop talking about the same old stuff. It's it's just such a fascinating book. And after we got off the call, I ordered it immediately. And 
I find you so interesting. You are you are such a Rubik cube to me <laughs> because you you have this legalese background, you have this fundraising background, but you have this just undeniable curiosity about innovation and tech. And I, this book, I want to talk about it. It's called The Future of Fundraising, but the sub um, the subheading on it, which I love so much, is how philanthropy's future is here with donors dictating the terms. And you go into things like, you've already talked about AI, but the impact of donor advised funds and cryptos in this. Um, my favorite chapter, we're going to dive into it in a little bit, is the dirty little secrets about fundraiser compensation. Mm -hmm. And I want you to talk about you know, what inspired you to write this book and how are donors starting to dictate those terms of fundraising today? Well, you know, as, because I'm a kind of a different kind of fundraising consultant, it's not, you know, I'm just going, hey, this is how it gets done. Let me know how you make out. I'm really, um, and I've enjoyed having the donor meetings. I've, I, you know, I always put in my biographical stuff. I've been on over 4,000 solicitation calls and I have, but that has informed me and it's about what donors are thinking and how they're behaving and what they like about not fundraisers and more so what they don't like about fundraisers than the behaviors of fundraisers in terms of relationships. With respect to all of that, it gave me an insight of, okay, where's this, this space going? Do we really even need a nonprofit to raise money? So when I get approached by a social impact uh, investment company that says, we'd like you to help us raise money and, and here's the way it's going to work and here's the percentage of comp you're going to get for funding the money because it's an ROI. Or, you know, when I talk to a donor, say, you know what, we don't really want to go through a nonprofit. We've created um, a business that helps people in prison, let's say, to build things and it self generates revenue and that's able to sustain them and grow because they don't care about the profit. And that's really important. So people want to do good. It's the means of which they're going to do to get there. So we've gone through this transition. It's not profits away, tax deductibility. Well, maybe that's not so important to some people who have a lot of money. But then you have L3Cs and B Corps and social good corporations and social impact investing. We're going to find a way to solve problems globally but it might not necessarily be through nonprofits. And, and one of the other things was I was watching TV one day and I saw this thing for ocean. I don't know if you guys have seen it on TV. You know, they, they rake up plastic in the ocean it's, and, and they re, they make bracelets out of it and they resell it. And I thought, wow, that's, but it wasn't a nonprofit. It was just a business. And there's so many businesses out there that people aren't aware of um, that do good like that, generate a profit and it feeds back and to help other people. And I have so many stories that I could talk to you about like that. Well, I mean, we definitely want to hear him because I think this has been a theme definitely this season, but I think we geek out on this all the time that it feels like we're solving for the wrong thing if we don't look past and say it doesn't have to be solved just through charity. It's not going to be solved just through charity or nonprofit. It's going to take a lot of different people approaching it and probably doing it a much more efficient or more community-based way than what it would be if it just had to stay in this one lane. So I love that you're speaking there. Do you want to share an example off the top of your head? Uh, well, you know, I'm just, you know, as you're speaking, I was thinking about donor advice funds because, you know, there's there's good and evil of donor advice funds. And, mm -hmm. you know, I was at a conference in July last year in Colorado, and I met a gentleman who'd put his business in a donor advice fund. And in the last 30 years, that donor advised funds, give, his company's given away $500 million to that donor's advised wow. funds. But then there's a lot of people who saw an opportunity to assets under management 
through a donor advised fund. And there's a lot of parked assets that aren't really going to the use. So the federal government at some point, and there's legislation that's being considered that would cause people to give it out over a certain period of time. That's just one example that, that comes to my mind. I really love that we're having this conversation around innovation. And one of the things that I really agreed with that you said in your book was that if nonprofit doesn't continue to radically innovate, not just the way that we do our business, but the way that we are showing up, the way that we are um, compensating our people, the way that we're pouring into tech, these donors are actually going over into these social impact um, organizations, these B Corps, and they're investing there because they can see the ROI is moving much more quickly. It's much more transparent. They're able to use the tech and see how it's actually able to fuel the mission forward. So I would just love your thoughts on that as we're starting to get into the innovation part of this conversation. Yeah, well, I had an interesting conversation with a tech company. I'm, I'm constantly talking to the tech companies because, you know, they're putting billions of dollars into this sector. The conversation went like, well, we, some nonprofits, not a lot, but they have data science teams or debt, you know, on, on staff. So it, you know, it's, it's bad enough to talk to a board right now and a nonprofit say, you know, you really got to invest in your team. They need a prospect research tool. And I can name a whole bunch of companies, but, you know, they nickel and dime things. Yeah. And meanwhile, they can't innovate and grow and take care of the demand and the need that's out there when artificial intelligence can solve a lot of those problems. And, you know, I think we've gotten this trend from um, working in a silo to solve like a nonprofit's issue to global issues like climate change and poverty housing. Habitat for Humanity, which has been a client of ours, was a client of ours, you know, they address poverty housing. But, you know, it's a global agenda item for the United Nations. And so now we're seeing how do we attack these things globally? And so one nonprofit can't solve it. And there's plenty of money out in the world to do things. I mean, that's that's really not the issue. We have the money. It's just that we have it's uh, too many people out there trying to raise money for too many things that aren't consolidated. And, and I got into consolidation of mergers in the book because that needs to happen as well. Well, why is that such like a dirty word of like merging? And we've talked about it sometimes on the podcast. You know, it, it has to do with, I think, ownership. And, I, you know, back in the um, late 80s or 90s, there were a lot of mergers and acquisitions going on in corporate, in the corporate world. And I was in this sector. And, you know, it kind of, I kind of looked at it like, why is there not any mergers and acquisitions? We, all we're doing is adding more and more and more nonprofits, but you know, like nine of the same nonprofits in, in one city. I mean, I had a gentleman call me up. It was, um, I think it was crisis pregnancy centers. And, and he said, you know, I'm on a board of one. He goes, well, we're competing with eight others. You know, what would she do? I said, to merge because you're, you're duplicating services and everything like that. So what happened, I think in the past is nonprofits didn't think they were businesses. And they said, well, we don't need to do that. And they didn't behave like that. And they didn't have a business mindset. But if you don't have a business mindset running a nonprofit now and try and find a way to generate revenue aside from asking people for money, then you got a big problem coming up in the future. And, you know, survivability um, may be a big issue for you. I wrote an article uh, for Nonprofit Pro on the impending nonprofit crash. But those who are progressive and, and doing the right things are going to survive. Those aren't. They're just going to disappear. And that's going to be the bottom third of nonprofits. 
I feel like you're speaking our words back to us. We just had an eight trends that we were unpacking for 2022. And one of them is nonprofits have to think like a business. I mean, this is, this is an enterprise. We have got to figure out a way to make sustainable revenue that not only just grow um, the bottom line, but we've got to grow our missions. These are big and heady world problems. I think of a really successful merger of two organizations we had on the podcast back in season one um, with Feeding Tampa Bay and Trinity Cafe. They were both in the middle of the pandemic trying to feed hungry people in Tampa and realized somebody had the food and somebody had the space. And so they got together, they merged their boards, and guess what? They were more powerful than ever because they weren't having to compete not only for you know, to your point, all of the same elements and programs, but they're not having to compete for the dollars as well because they're all under one roof. So I want to talk about like these innovations because I thought that you had so many in your book that were so great. You talked about AI, which we've already talked about, blockchain, DAS, social impact investing. Like, Talk a little bit about which one's your favorite and if there are nonprofits who are listening right now, what are one or two things that they could take away from maybe one or two of these options? Well, you know, definitely artificial intelligence because the machine learning happens so rapidly. And I, and I think at some point, I, I once said the fundraisers will be extinct, but that, you know, I was corrected because there's the machine learning and then the human learning and all the data is really great. But if you don't have somebody who knows how to talk to another human being, you've got a problem, but there's biases in the machine learning. And that's another problem that we have. So, but artificial intelligence is really helps us identify who the best people are. I mean, they create personas of who would be inclined to give to your organization based on what you typically think that is. But also, you know, I go back to boards. You know, the boards really need to understand the importance of investing in, in the artificial intelligence piece of it. The other thing that I was thinking about is at some point, because the, everything's tracked, these zeta bytes of information, I foresee at some point in the future, you could take, let's say, $5,000 and put it in a fund. And then the uh, artificial intelligence will look at the things that you buy, you know, you know, if you go to church, you never go to church, where, where you live. And, you know, if you have a pet, let's say, and they'll say, well, in your area, there are these five or six charities and you have $5,000 based on their financials and metrics, which is all online, then this is how your $5,000 should be distributed. And so people will say like, I don't need to have anybody come ask me. My, my, um, Artificial intelligence tells me exactly where my money should go based on the metrics. And so that could happen eventually too. And so this whole thing about spending time with, you know, hey, who do we know? Who's, you know, who could invest in our organization? Those conversations are going to go by the wayside in the near term. I mean, I'm ready to usher in that era because I hate that that's the default way of just like trying to use favors or something like that to even get in the door. So I just love that it's kind of, brings it back. All this points to me of like getting really clear about what you're trying to accomplish through your mission, getting agnostic about how it's going to get done and getting people that actually believe in it, you know, like that actually want to align with you, um, to make it happen. Like, I think all that's pointing through the, the fact that tech may can speed that up, but it all comes back to some core truths of what'll make this a lot better and stronger as an industry, I believe. And, you know, it's going to make, um, nonprofits, even more accountable on, you know, with their metrics. Sometimes we measure things inappropriately and that becomes a guiding point 
for our behavior. And that, for me, not necessarily means that that's the best nonprofit. Oh, give an example of that. What do you mean by that? Well, like I'm working with a nonprofit in Colorado, and it's got a Charity Navigator um, rating that's not great, but they do amazing, amazing work. But it's just because of where they're putting their money and and how all that data goes into Charity Navigator's model. So people are trying to be, they want that five-star rating from Charity Navigator, but does that really mean that they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. I mean, it's it's hard to know that. You're poking the bear, <laughs> bringing <laughs> this up with me. <laughs> I mean, I really like the folks at Charity Navigator, and they're based in New Jersey too, and and they do good things. But you know, they're fundraising too, so um, yeah. to you know sustain sustain their business. Uh, but is that the best that we could do? Is Dun and Bradstreet, Charity Navigator, BYS, you know, are all those things the penultimate measure of the success of a nonprofit? I don't think so. Hey friends, this episode is presented by Virtuous, and they just happen to be one of our favorite companies. Let me tell you why. You know we believe everyone matters, and we've witnessed the greatest philanthropic movements happen when you see and activate donors at every level. And here's the thing, Virtuous created a fundraising platform to help you do just that. It's much more than a nonprofit CRM. Virtuous is committed to helping charities reimagine generosity through responsive fundraising, which is simply putting the donor at the center of fundraising growing giving through personalized donor journeys, and by helping you respond to the needs of every individual. We love it because this approach builds trust and loyalty through personalized engagement. Sound like Virtuous may be a fit for your organization? Learn more today at virtuous.org or follow the link in our show notes. Hey friends, are you ready to take your digital engagement to the next level, but feel stuck about where to start? Let us introduce you to Feather. Feather is an amazing tech startup focused on making nonprofit outreach more impactful by connecting to your right audience, wherever they are online. Feather partners with nonprofits to create personalized digital advertising campaigns. And rather than tell you, we want to show you. The Humane Society of North Central Florida has participated in a local online giving day called The Amazing Give for many years. It's a competitive landscape for donations, so the Humane Society knew they had to maximize donations to stand out. They launched two retargeting campaigns with Feather. For $300 in ad spend, their retargeting ads brought 119 visitors to their Amazing Give donation page and generated more than $6,000 in donations in just one day. With Feather, a small amount of ad spend can go a long way. Use Feather to promote like a pro with a powerful campaign that works. Learn about their solutions for nonprofits at feather.co. That's feather without the last e.co. Now let's get back to this amazing conversation. You know, we've got to elevate. We've got to question these things. We need to, and, and not to throw Charity Navigator under the bus, it's like it would be incumbent upon us to reach out and say, this doesn't feel right. And this is actually something that cripples our sector. And how can we work together to make a change in this? And and I, you talk about that a lot in your book. I was really proud of you for how you <laughs> called so many people out. And I have to say, it was refreshing to have somebody stand up and say, we've got to have accountability in a lot of these areas where our structures are truly working against us. Yeah, we, we've got to have talent. You know, we're, we lose people all the time. People talk about turnover in this space all the time. There's a lot of different reasons for it. But just on that last point, I mean, I, I got in an argument with a, a board member. There's a lawyer on the board. And, you know, we were talking about my fees. My fees were less than 
10% of whatever they're going to raise. We, you know, I'm, I'm not working on a percentage base, but it always comes down to that. You know, like people want to say, uh, well, how much, what percentage are you going to raise? Or, you know, what percentage is that going to cost us? And I said, he was a lawyer. I said, there's nothing that says you could can't spend more than 10%. But he got, <laughs> he got stuck in that silo of we're going to get into trouble. Nobody's going to give to us. And I'm like, I've never heard that before. It's the same argument of people saying, well, we can't pay bonuses or incentive comp. You know, it's illegal. And I'm like, who says it's illegal? An association of fundraising professionals came up with a code of conduct and they said, we don't think this is ethical. But that was a model based on something that was set up 40 years ago. And that hasn't changed. I would love to go deeper on the comp. It's it's not comparable to for-profit jobs in a lot of ways. And it's like, we need a hard reset on this. Would you talk about nonprofit compensation? What are you really challenging the industry to look at in that? And how do we kind of have those conversations? Well, you know, I've gotten a lot of, you know, a lot of nonprofits, you know, who have smaller budgets, like, um, they, they kind of self, some of them, the bigger ones self-destruct, but the smaller ones are like, well, we can't really afford to hire a good major gifts person, or we can't really afford to hire the staff, you know, because we've got to, we got to adhere to the guidelines of, of one of the charity navigators of the world. And, um, we just don't want to run afoul of that, but that causes a lot of problems getting right, the right people. So then what happens is then you hire somebody who doesn't have all that they need. And then that person you know, doesn't have any experience. And then you live with them for two or three years and nothing gets accomplished. And that's why I say, you know, it's easy to count how much money you raise. It's really hard to count how much money got left on the table because you didn't invest in the right person. But it's a really good fundraiser cost a lot of money. So we did a, help the search at an organization in New York. They hired a major gift person with three years experience, $95,000 starting salary. So when these people want to spend sixty and seventy and eighty thousand dollars for a major gift officer, it's like, well, we're just kicking the tires on something. But as far as comp goes, incentive comp, you know, we've worked with clients that pay incentive comp, that pay bonuses, but it's not like you raise ten thousand dollars, you get a thousand bucks. It's set on a standard like business. How, did we? Did the organization meet its overall budgetary goals? Yes. Did the development team or you as a development officer meet your your goals and targets? Because a lot of development, development directors don't even have metrics tied to them. How many people did you see? How much money did you raise? And then lastly, how did you do and how did you perform? And then that money goes in a pot. I mean, Charity, Nav, Charity Waters got a great model. They had a bunch of for-profit companies put money, you know, I mentioned this in a, in a book, into a pool, you know, so that the exec can then distribute you know, bonuses out to the team. There's a lot of creative ways. And and if, if someone's telling you that nonprofits aren't paying bonuses and incentives, the hospitals and the universities, then they're flat out wrong because I see it all the time. I, we had one client, they start, they had somebody $50,000. They started him. This uh, kid, a young man, he did amazing. He hit, blew out his targets. He got a $50,000 bonus. So he made $100,000. You don't think he's incentive to go out and do more? Everybody wins. Yeah. And I think too, it's, it's not just the loss. If you hire the wrong person, it's also like the time, you know, because building relationships takes such a long runway. So this is a decision that can set you back for years. You mm -hmm. know, if you really 
make the cheap shot and hire the wrong person. I got to give some stats on this because I th- I found it to be very interesting. And in some of them, I think we know, you know, you talk a lot about, you know, the average tenure of a fundraiser, like a frontline fundraiser is 16 to 18 months, mm-hmm. but the cost to the organization when they leave, John, what do you think it would be? I don't know. I mean, some multiple. Yeah. yeah. Like $50,000 or so. $127,650 is what you have in your book. Is it more than that now? Yeah, it, it is. I mean, I'll just give you, I mean, because there's so many stories. I had a client, gentleman, he was making $50,000. He was raising a million dollars a year for the charity. He asked for a $20,000 raise. The, the exec said no. He left. He had all the relationships. They lost $400,000 the next year and the next year and the next year. Because they couldn't find somebody who is as well liked as Jimmy, my friend Jimmy, and so you know people make these mistakes um, because they're not thinking like a business. And it's and part of the other issue is you have execs who are underpaid, and so I and so I'll tell an exec, well, you got to pay this man or woman, you know, one hundred fifty thousand dollars. Well, that's more than I make. I know that's part of the problem. So the execs need to get paid more too. But if you want to have, if you consider a fundraiser like a salesperson, is a lot of businesses where the sales people make a lot more money than the CEO. Yeah. And and I want to make sure that we're not just talking about fundraisers here because I think our back of shop uh, house, I think our donor relations teams, all of them are positively integral to closing the gift, you know, on the front line. And so I want you to give some practical tips to some, to people, because if you're feeling heavy right now, listening to this saying, yes, I agree with you, but Paul, Becky, John, I can't get my board to see us as anything more than an overhead, you know, cost. What can I do? Because it's going to take some conversation, some socialization of this. What can people do right now to start start this conversation and start moving toward fighting for equity in our pay? Yeah, well, you know, if you're a fundraiser or a, a, a staff, you know, line, you know, I would come up with a plan. And show them that what you could do as a team and then start, you know, either the execs presents it, but it, you know, does it necessarily get need to be approved by the board? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so, but come up with, or, or even hire, you know, you have a benefit, you have benefits and comp consultants out there, have somebody come in and talk to your team. You know, you don't need an HR person sitting on your board, you know, to, to do it, but there's, there's, you've got to present an opportunity of how much better things could be. Part of the problem is you might have people on staff, you paid what they're worth. And I say this respectfully to everybody, but if you want to change it up a little bit and get better people, if you need better people, then you know, you're going to have to try and find a way to re- retain and attract them. I just heard a story in the news the other day, and I don't know where it might've been in um, Tennessee, but they added a this restaurant added a tip line for the kitchen staff, and so now they have a tip line for the waiter, and they have a tip line for the backroom people, and so and then the company is matching that they're keeping everybody, everybody's happy, everybody's motivated, and I think you know we're going to get to that place because you watch what makes businesses successful. That's what's going to make your nonprofit successful. Yeah, and it all points to like leaning in, thinking innovatively, thinking like a business and, and not, not changing, you know? So I think that, could you help us land the plane on embracing innovative cultures? You know, we feel like culture is everything. How can nonprofits tactically 
start to try some of these things that we're throwing out today and stepping into this? Maybe if they're scared, maybe if they don't feel like they have the support, where do you begin? Yeah. You know, I've done, a, you know, I do a lot of reading and I try and keep up with things that are different than what I would typically read. So, you know, I'll read the Chronicle of Philanthropy. I'll read Stanford Social Innovation Review. I'll go to conferences that, you know, aren't in my space. So, I mean, how many times do you need to go to a conference to find out what a major gift is, how to make a major gift to ask, <laughs> you know, how to do a capital campaign. You can read all that stuff online or just call me up. I'll tell you, you know, <laughs> um, so to innovate, you you need to broaden and educate yourself um, beyond what you see as just fundraising. So when I look at this, you know, the law is important. Donor privacy, you have to be on top of what the donor privacy laws are and cybersecurity. And are you compliant with the data that you have in there? I think it's SOC compliance and all those sorts of things. And then you have to be understand about a business and how do you compensate people and what are the opportunities there? And then understanding tech and how tech can enhance, you know, the, your fundraising. I mean, I, I've got about a list of about 20 tech companies that I that I like and then that I, I refer things to. But a lot of my clients, when I talk to them about, well, you know, there's this company here that does this. Oh, I never heard of that. There's a company that does that. I mean, some of them don't even have a prospect research tool on hand. I mean, one of my clients calls it my little I spy machine. But, you know, so it's it's really embracing the totality of what your activity is and how you're affected because donors ask hard questions and you have to be up to speed on, on all those things. And yes, because you know more, you're going to be attracted to other nonprofits who want you. I don't think just, you know, the old time where you took a football coach and put him in the development office because he knew a lot of people and he could raise money isn't going to work anymore. You need somebody who knows their way around social fundraising platforms, uh, you know, subscription philanthropy. They need to understand the whole gamut of where money comes from. And it comes in, it's not just someone writing a check anymore. It comes in from all different sources. I got one client, they've got, they put a Q, uh, QR code on the outside of their envelope when they're giving. So they could just Venmo it and they're giving one up like 50%. It's just those That's little awesome. things. And you talk a lot in the book just about you have to diversify that revenue. You cannot just stay in the grant lane, in the event lane, or or even to the major gift prospect. You can't have just, you know, four or five major gift prospects. So, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate about what you're saying is, you know, that you have to get the right data. You know, I feel like I'm going to share a story really quickly, just as we're talking about compensation. But I remember when John and I were up for or um, raises in our last um, healthcare organization. And our organization, God love them, were, you know, it's a 10,000 employee healthcare organization. We were a 10 person shop within that huge corporate robot. And so what did they do to do a market analysis on our salaries? They start looking in healthcare or they start looking at nonprofit organizations all around us. Well, we're a billion dollar organization and we couldn't be compared to March of Dimes, you know, which is an amazing organization, but it only had two people, you know, running a really small mm. shop and not pulling in the same revenue that we were pulling in. And to me, this is not a slam again against the HR teams, but you need to find somebody who understands nonprofit, who understands thinking like a business, who understands thinking innovatively, because if you want to have the best fundraisers, people who stay for a very long time, they feel like they are in a vibrant culture that they are invested in, that 
they are they have value and they are cherished those are the people we want to stay long term and if you're going to do a basic market analysis you're not going to be paying people anywhere near what they could bring in if you gave them the runway to literally soar you know one thing that i think we talked about earlier that i want to circle back to is just this idea that today's donor has a different mindset than they've ever had before and i wanted to give you a chance to kind of share what your research, your findings, your experiences led you to see, but really curious about what is different than maybe what we had seen in the last couple of decades. What's the mindset happening today? Well, the mindset was there was an entity, it was a nonprofit. You wrote a check, you send some money in and the nonprofit did some good. But now some of these donors have so much money that maybe the tax deductibility doesn't even matter to them. All they want to do is have an impact in the world. You know, I, I say my theme for my life's thing is I want to empower people to go out and have an impact in the world. I think, you know, we were created not for ourselves, but to help others. And so a donor who has resource is going to find a way to help others. And if it's not getting it done by a nonprofit, they're smart enough to say, well, I think I'm just going to start a business. I'm going to, I'm going to start a coffee shop that generates revenue that's going to feed the homeless. There's nothing wrong with that as long as it's self-sustaining the business. And so the donor mindset is, are nonprofits keeping up with the needs in society and are they able to get it done? And when they see the turnover and when they see some of the behaviors, they're like, no, it's just not moving fast enough for me. And that's, and, and you know, goes back to the whole thing about a board. You know, we the laws said that you need to have a board. But in today's society, because we have so much accountability and metrics and oversight, do you really even need – I challenge the notion of whether you even need to have a board of governance to help you make decisions because that takes – that slows the whole process down. I'm telling you, Polly D is shaking things up. Well, you know, you got to look at the root of how these things started. So we have so many metrics and so much technology and all that data could go in there. Do you really need an oversight from a governing body that really now you're looking for to have people in there so that they can raise money for you. I think it's a big question about oversight versus who's just advising. But if, you know, there's some great working boards out there of people who are pouring into solicitation, stewardship, volunteerism, events, and we want to keep those people connected because they make our story richer and they make the family bigger, which I think is great. And so I just really like this concept around the modern 21st century donor. And I just... I fear, um, here I am now, I'm just on my chase lounge in the therapist uh, room trying to talk (laughs) about my fears, but I fear what will happen to the nonprofit who doesn't innovate, you know, in the next five years, because we're watching boomers who, who love the the old style. Many of them love the old style of fundraising and they like to be courted in the way that they are, but it just doesn't meet the modern moment for a lot of the millennials and the Gen Zers. And they're going to want more dynamic interaction. They're going to want more content. They're going to want to see more, um, actual impact to, you know, whether that's on a video or text to them. And I I think that this overwhelms a lot of nonprofit that we're moving so heavily into digital. And I just say to to anyone that's listening and feeling this, start small, but start somewhere. There's now a trend for money going directly 
to the end user. And that's what blockchain will do. But, you know, there's different cultures that money goes like if somebody needs money to get fed, they send the money to that person instead. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're going to see more and more of that. I think in like there's a Gen Z and the millennials, the average gift to crypto comes from that group. And the average gift is $10,000 worth of crypto. The difference is that it's anonymous. So now we're coming into a new place where money like crypto is coming into a nonprofit. So they don't even know unless the, they say, hey, I sent you money because they don't care about, I want my name on anything. I mean, it's an exciting time. And I just think, you know, your career has just had all these inputs and all these moments. Is there a moment of philanthropy that's really stuck with you? Uh, I, we ask this because we just deeply believe in it, you know, like day after day, we've just seen how philanthropy changes people. And so I'm curious one story that maybe has stopped you in your tracks. Yeah. You know, there's, it really started, I mean, I, we've gotten from nothing, you know, $50 gifts to a hundred million dollar gift. And, um, it was when I was working with the university of Notre Dame and, you know, there's always stewardship events and there was an annual fund at the time. I think it was a thousand dollar donors, which, you know, I'm in my late twenties, I guess. And, you know, we're doing a bus tour campus. And I just said to one of the women, I said, um, you know, so what made you decide to join the Soren Society? And she said, you know, this school has meant so much to my son that I took a job cleaning houses so that I could be a member and give back to the university. And that always stuck to me because, you know, it's kind of the story of the widow's might she gave from her, um, poverty, not from her wealth. And some of those gifts, I have countless gifts of people sacrificially giving because they really cared. Um, but that kind of set the tone for what I was looking for. You know, a lot of people make big gifts, but they never miss it. It doesn't affect their life. But some people make gifts and the family, the whole family sacrifices to make a difference in somebody else's life. And that that means a lot to me. And I just have to think in some ways they're richer because of the experience. And and that's the power of philanthropy to me is that it has the potential to dramatically impact the beneficiary, but also the user or the giver. And I, and I think that the opportunity that exists for nonprofit is to come into the space between and just say, here's the story that's happened as a result of this person giving to this person. And that's what we want to hear. And, and I think we're all just looking for something good right now, something to celebrate. How do we take that moment, you know, of, of creating a connection and an emotion that strong and how do we replicate it? And that's what I love about story. And I so appreciate you sharing that. You know, Paul, we end all of our podcasts with a one good thing. And I'm wondering what would be your one good thing that you would offer up to our audience today? It's hard. It's hard work, but you got to have a kind of a servant's heart for it. So the one good thing is kind of to stick with it because you can't see some of the rewards that will come to you in a lifetime of doing this work. I've met some amazing people that I would have never met. I mean, and of course I've been, and I say this, I've been, I've had tea in the house of Lords, um, house in parliament and (laughs) I met Desmond Tutu and sitting presidents. And I never thought I'd find myself in those places, but then I've met some of the poor, I've met some of the richest of the rich and the poorest of the poor. And I've, and I've been able to get a broader understanding of what this world is all about. 
and how to build a bridge between those who don't have anything, like right after the earthquake in Haiti, mm-hmm. to those who have so much and are totally, totally depressed and sad, you know? So I just say stick with it, but have a servant's heart with it. This isn't about you, it's about them. What an awesome way to end this conversation because I don't know, it lights a fire in me of just this special space that we get to inhabit in serving on the front lines of mission or behind the scenes of a mission or just being connected as a donor. Like it is sacred ground and it's really incredible what we get to be part of. Okay. So Paul, how can people connect with you? Where do you hang out online when you're not writing books? And tell us how to get your book, by the way, too. You know, it's um it's on Amazon. You know, they can email me at Paul at highimpactnonprofit.com. Well, I just really appreciate the way that your curiosity is really fueling innovation in our sector. So thanks for coming in. I just tell everybody, please can check out the future of fundraising. There is some really forward thinking and challenging um, insight in there. I absolutely love the book. And someday I want you to sign it when we meet in person, my friend. Thanks, Thank Paul. Thank you so much, Paul. Sure. Hey friends, thanks so much for being here. Did you know we create a landing page for each podcast episode with helpful links, freebies, and even shareable graphics? Be sure to check it out at the link in this episode's description. You probably hear it in our voices, but we love connecting you with the most innovative people to help you achieve more for your mission than ever before. We'd love for you to join our good community. It's free, and you can think of it as the after party to each podcast episode. You can sign up today at weareforgood.com backslash hello. One more thing, if you loved what you heard today, would you mind leaving us a podcast rating and review? It means the world to us and your support helps more people find our community. Thanks, friends. I'm our producer, Julie Comfer, and our theme song is Sunray by Remy Borsboom. Rabbit fans have always powered the We Are For Good podcast, but now Rabbit fans can get even more goodness and access by joining Good Friends. It's our listener support community for the We Are For Good podcast. Good Friends comes with perks, exclusive episodes with John and I, including The Good Brief, our new monthly cliff notes of the greatest takeaways and lessons learned from that month, and exclusive AMA episodes where we answer your burning questions and tap our community of experts. Join now or learn more at weareforgood.com backslash friends. We can't wait to see you inside. That's weareforgood.com slash friends.